We're going to be back in Revelation chapter 12 this morning. Revelation chapter 12. And as we open our Bibles again to this chapter, which is in the midst of a section, if you're just joining us this morning, that we've been studying in the whole book of Revelation. So you're coming into the middle of a very... uh, fast-moving series. Uh, Some of you who have been here don't maybe think it's fast-moving, but if you knew how much I don't say that's actually here, you'd be proud of me uh, that we're actually going this fast. But as as we look at Revelation chapter 12, I'm assuming this morning that a super majority of you, if not all of you who are here, would say that you love and support the nation of Israel. God's chosen people. That you stand up for Israel's right to be a nation and to defend itself from those who want to destroy her. But this morning, if I were talking to a larger evangelical Christian audience, people who are believers in Christ, but they're from all kinds of backgrounds in our country today, I would no longer be able to assume that there is unanimous support for Israel, not not like there used to be. Because attitudes in the United States have shifted not only away from supporting the nation of Israel, but also toward supporting Israel's enemies instead. This change in attitude is most prominent among young evangelicals, those under 35. According to polls conducted by the Barna Research Group, In 2015, 75% of young evangelicals said that they want to see the United States side with Israel in our country's efforts to help with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But about six years later, the same number in 2021 has dropped from 75% to only 34%. And at the same time, support for the Palestinian side of the conflict has doubled among the same group. By the way, I'm not saying that all Palestinians are Israel's enemies. And, and uh, I've, I was in Israel a couple of years ago and talked to different people, Muslim background, Israeli background. A lot of them just want to live there and get along. But there are many Palestinians who want nothing more than to get rid of Israel. And those are the ones I'm talking about. So these statistics suggest what many have been supposing for several years now, that we can no longer assume that Bible-believing Christians full-heartedly support and stand with the nation of Israel. Or at least there's not the same fervor of support for Israel that we have traditionally known. But there is another part of the survey that may help us understand why there has been a decline in the support for Israel among professing believers. When those who were asked... When those who supported Israel were asked why they supported Israel, only 26% of them said that it was for religious reasons. 26%. That means three out of four supported Israel for political or sociological reasons, not for religious reasons. And I think this is a telltale sign. If support for Israel is largely driven by a mere political or sociological agenda, then it means that even those who support Israel are not supporting them because they're convicted by any biblical or theological reasons for doing so. And that may mean that we have not done a very good job in teaching the next generation what the Bible has to say about this matter. 
Well, we're about to examine a portion of Revelation 12 this morning that implies at least four theological reasons that we should cherish and support and pray for the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, that it should be part of our Christian heritage, our Christian culture to do so. And I don't mean that we have to blindly agree with every political or military decision that Israel makes. I mean, they're a democratic nation like the U.S. Sometimes their government, like ours, will make good decisions. Sometimes they will make bad decisions. And we can be critical and discerning about them, just like we are with our own government. But what I'm saying is we should be on their side. And we should not be in agreement with those who want to destroy them. Because we love the chosen people of God. I'm saying this morning that this is theologically driven. It's not merely politically or socially driven, but theologically. And our text this morning reminds us why. Now, I want to be clear. The purpose of the text in its context of Revelation is to show yet again the futility of Satan's attacks on God and his plan of redemption. This morning, we're looking at a text where Satan goes after Israel itself. And the vindication of those who are faithful to the Lord is the theme here of Revelation. I'm I'm not taking the text out of a context, but I'm, I'm making a specific application of this text as we continue to mine out what God is saying about what is going to happen in the book of Revelation in the end times. But this morning, as we continue to see the story in Revelation 12 unfold, This is the very specific application that I'm going to make. So let's get our bearings once again in this chapter. So in verses 1 through 6 of Revelation 12, I'm not going to take time to start at the very beginning again this morning, but if, if we read this, we'll see Satan's first attack. John describes a vision that he sees that represents Satan's attack to devour the incarnate Christ. And when that fails, verses 7 through 12 describes Satan's war against heaven itself. We looked at that text last week. And that battle seems to take place sometime near the midway point of the seven-year tribulation period. And when Satan loses that battle and he is cast down from heaven, he goes after the nation of Israel itself. And that's where we pick up this morning, uh, the, the story this morning. Now, I'm going to start reading in the middle of verse 4. If you have your Bibles there, you can follow along. I'm going to have the words uh, on the screen. But in the middle of verse 4, this actually takes us back to the first section of the chapter when Jesus was born into the world and Satan was waiting to devour him. And remember, John calls these signs, which means that he's describing a drama that points to a greater reality. And if you look at the middle of verse 4, John says that the dragon, who we learn later is Satan, stood before the woman, who we, we saw last week is Israel, representing Israel, who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one to, his, to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's the Lord Jesus Christ who's going to come as the Messiah and set up his kingdom. But... Her child was caught up to God and to his throne in the resurrection and the ascension. Now, before we go any further, we already encounter here the first of four theological reasons that we should love and stand with and pray for the Jewish nation of Israel. And it is this, the nation of Israel gave to us our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
as an answer to human depravity. Out of sheer love, God, thousands of years before Jesus is born, calls a pagan living in Ur whose name was Abram. And he told that man that if he followed him, he would make of him a great nation. And that nation would be a channel through which God would bless all of the other nations and peoples on the earth, providing them salvation. And no matter what Abram did to annoy God, and he did some things to annoy God, and no matter what his offspring did to annoy God, and they did some things to annoy God, God kept his promise to Abraham. And eventually, through the nation of Israel who came from Abraham, God raised up a king named David and promised David there would always be a king to sit on his throne, the throne of the nation that would bless the earth. And sometimes that nation was hanging by a thread, seemingly from our perspective, as we read the word of God. Like the time when God brought Babylon against them to judge them for their idolatry. And Jehoiakim was carried away captive to Babylon. Everybody thought, the monarchy is over. They're taking our king away. That's the end of David's line. Surely the king of Babylon will execute him. But the book of 2 Kings ends with this amazing event. The king of Babylon, it says, graciously freed Jehoiakim and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. And Jehoiakim ate at the king's table, and the king gave him an allowance and took care of him. That's what God did to keep his promise. Because he wasn't through with Israel. There was still going to be a righteous king that would rule on a righteous throne. And God, through the prophets, continued to make this promise to his people, such as the one we find in Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days." And then in Galatians 4, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus is a Jewish savior, born a Jew, born under the law of Moses. And we only need to look back as far as World War II and the consequences of the Third Reich to discover what can happen when a religious nation espouses a theology that erases the Jewishness of Jesus, making him a generic white European like we see in all the paintings. And for several years in the field of New Testament studies, there's been a movement to restore Jesus to his first century context as a true Jew living in a Jewish culture, abiding under Jewish law so that he can fulfill the law like we're studying on Wednesday nights. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, was Jewish through and through. And if for no other reason, we should love the Jewish people from whom our Savior came. Now, the woman Israel, in this uh, vignette, this sign that John calls it, gave birth to Jesus Christ. And notice what verse 6 says after that. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days or three and a half years. Now, there is a gap in the story here 
between the time when Jesus is caught up to God's throne and the woman, Israel, flees in the wilderness. We don't often see these gaps, actually, in Revelation. Sometimes we, we don't know that, what the chronology is. But we're seeing here, as John describes it, a sign. And so he's telling us this is a metaphor. And oftentimes in prophetic metaphor, you, you, yeah, you know, you're, you're sort of telescoping and seeing all of the events at once, and you're not sure how much time is between each event. But Israel's flight into the wilderness does not take place until Satan is thrown down from heaven and tries to take out his vengeance upon God's beloved people, Israel. So we skip down to verse 13, where we pick up the story that we're reading in verse 6. It says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished. And now it says, for a time and times and half a time, which is another way of saying three and a half years. Verse 15, Then the serpent, the dragon, poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, there are at least three more theological reasons implied in this text that we should side with and value the Jewish people. And I'm going to state the second and the third at the same time because they're woven together into the narrative, and then we'll look at the narrative uh, together. So the second reason is this. The nation of Israel is hated by Satan who wants to destroy her. And if Satan hates something and wants it destroyed, then you know without a doubt that this is against the will of God because Satan lives every moment to oppose and frustrate the plan of God and to lead God's creatures into rebellion. So how can we take a posture toward Israel that in any way encourages Satan's agenda against her? But there's a corollary uh, to that theological reason, and it's this. The nation of Israel is loved by God who desires to save her. And if someone is loved by God, then it is fitting for us as his children to love them too. In fact, it is incumbent upon us that we behave the same way toward Israel that God behaves toward Israel. But let's see how these two observations, the hatred of the devil for Israel and the love of God for Israel, plays out in the story that we're studying here in Revelation chapter 12. So look at verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. I love what Grant Osborne in his commentary points out here about the way the story is phrased. He says that it shows the sudden defeat of Satan. Because it says, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, it sounds like one minute he's fighting the battle and the next minute he's thrown down to earth as if it happened so quickly, so forcefully that the truth had to dawn on him as he collected his senses. And once he realized what had happened, he became enraged and turned his fury on the woman, Israel. And it says that he pursued the woman. It's the Greek word that means to pursue or to persecute. Probably both things are going on here. He's trying to catch her, to overtake her, to do great harm to her. 
But God, out of love for her, has already provided a means for her safety. If you look back to verse 6, it says, The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished, which means she's to be fed. She has, uh, she's going to have her needs taken care of. She's going to be provided for for 1,260 days or three and a half years. And then down in verse 14, it says, But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. There it is again. To the place where she is to be nourished, the same word as in verse 6, for a time and times and half a time or three and a half years. These verses appear to point to a place in the wilderness of Palestine where the Jewish nation can live safe from enemies who are trying to destroy her. Now, there's been a lot of talk as you study prophecy about what this place is. I'll tell you, some have suggested that this place of safety must refer to the ancient city of Petra. You'll see that a lot if you read popular theology on Revelation. Many of you have probably heard about this famous city carved in the rock. It's actually mentioned in Scripture. With its twisted passageways through the mountains, the inhabitants of Petra were able to thrive here for centuries because the treacherous passages and the deep caves were easy for them to defend. And Petra is located in the country of Jordan. It's actually not in Israel. It's about 35 miles from the border. And if the Jews are trying to hide where no one will find them, in my mind, it, probably they're not going to choose the most iconic tourist attraction of the country of Jordan, okay? Everybody knows that. They're not going to think, well, I wonder where they could have gone, you know? They're going to think to look there first, in my mind. But there are many other locations within Israel's borders where it is easy to escape. You read about Samuel running from Saul and how he's hiding in the caves or whatever. There's lots of terrain that, is, that uh, has, has very few people in it where you can hide in, in, the, in the nation uh, of Israel. And at the least, I think the city of Petra just gives us an example of the kind of place to which Israel may flee. This is an example of the fact that we're just not told this. We, we don't want to read too much into the story. But we, it seems to say, though, that they're going to go and they're going to find a place that God has already prepared for them that they're going to be able to hide from persecution. Now, when you read verse 14, you might be thinking, are the Jewish people living in Israel? I mean, those in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, the Galilee region, are they really going to run into the wilderness and hide during the tribulation period? Because remember, John says these are signs. This drama that's playing out is a sign. That points to a greater reality. Where does the sign end and the reality begin? And I would answer this way. When John says that the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she can swiftly fly away from the serpent, I would say that's recognizably a part of the metaphor. Because we already know that the woman is Israel. She's representative of something else. And the dragon is Satan. And so what it's saying is, that God is going to give the nation the ability to get to safely, safety quickly. A lot of people say, when you read Revelation, we can't understand what it says. It's just a bunch of metaphor. No, no, no. You read the metaphor like any other metaphor. As, probably has not really struck you if you've been listening to this series of Revel, on Revelation that, wow, he's having to fish to find the reality in all these different signs. No, I mean, it reads like something you would literally think about. And, and sometimes there's this drama that plays out that points to this actual reality that's going to happen. I mean, how did the nation 
of Israel crossed the Red Sea so quickly with all those people to escape Pharaoh. Have you ever thought about that? Don't you think God helped them somehow to get across? And you remember what God said to Israel in Exodus 19 after he brought them out of Egypt across the Red Sea, safety to Mount Sinai? These are literally the first words God told Moses to speak to the people when they reached Mount Sinai. Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God can do that again. And and we shouldn't be surprised. And in the same way here, it seems that God is going to bring to safely his people during this tribulation period when Satan and his earthly demonic forces are going to try to devour this woman nation who gave birth to the Messiah, and he is going to help them swiftly and powerfully. Now, when during the seven-year tribulation period... Is this all going to take place? You've noticed in Revelation, we keep seeing a reference to the three and a half years. I've never really parked alongside that number and talked about it before. Well, today's the day, okay? I think it would be helpful to to pause for a second and look at the chronology of the tribulation period, at least how it seems to be presented in Revelation. This won't take very long, maybe. Um, But uh, just to, to get our heads around the whole prophetic plan, The Bible seems to indicate that after the age of the church that we're in right now, the Lord will rapture living believers and resurrect believers who have died before this. He'll return in the clouds for us and catch us away. That's what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, there's no timeline in the back of the Bible that's inspired by God like the rest of Scripture, okay? We we don't have one passage we go to to say when these things are going to happen. But this is the way I'm approaching it here in this series. And this event, the rapture of the church, signals the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. That's the way Revelation 7.14 refers to it, a, a, a tribulation. And most of the book of Revelation describes events that happened during this seven-year tribulation. Look on this chart in red, Revelation 4-18. through 18, That describes this period, the bulk of Revelation. And at the climax, at the end of that, Christ returns, establishes his kingdom, Revelation 20, and after the thousand-year reign of Christ, there'll be final judgments, a new heaven and a new earth, and the Lord's people will be together with Christ and the Lamb, uh, God and his throne forever and ever. Now, right now, our focus is on the seven-year time period in Revelation chapters 4 through 18. This time period is consistently divided into two halves of three and a half years. In fact, we go back and look at the uh, book of Daniel, which we've done before. I'm not going to do it this morning. Daniel divides this distant time period up with this three and a half year idea as well. And there are three ways that these three and a half years are spoken of in Revelation. You've noticed this. First of all, sometimes it says 1,260 days. You divide that by 30 days per month, which is according to the Jewish calendar, And it comes out to 42 months or three and a half years. Sometimes it says 42 months, which uh, divided by 12 is three and a half years. And sometimes it uses the more cryptic a time and times and half a times, which means one year and two years plus one half year. Now, are we sure that the meaning of 
a time and times and half a time means three and a half years? Yes, we are, in fact. We know this for certain. I'm going to prove it to you. Revelation chapter 12. Okay, so look at this slide. Right? Those of you who are laughing at me right now. Uh, it says that the woman will be nourished in the wilderness for what? 1,260 days. And then look at that in verse 14. She'll be nourished in the wilderness for a time and times and half a time. It's the same period of time. It's just with different expressions. And by the way, I just want to mention, uh, for those who say Revelation is the metaphor and you can't understand it, like I mentioned a minute ago, the time periods of Revelation all seem to be very definite time periods. And they fit together just great if you just take them at face value. So the tribulation period appears, it seems, in two halves. Revelation divides this period into uh, a time of tribulation when judgments are beginning to fall, and that is marked by the two witnesses who are sent specifically to preach the gospel to the Jews as a final act of mercy upon them. We already worked through this chapter. They're pleading with the nation of Israel to accept their Messiah before the final day of judgment is looming. Jesus Christ appeared the first time and said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, the kingdom of heaven is really at hand in Revelation, and they're preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And we spent several weeks in Revelation chapter 11. So in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, it says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Remember that? Then, after Satan is cast down to the earth, as described in Revelation 12, 7 through 12, which we looked at last week, the devil goes on this rampage seeking to destroy God's chosen people, especially those who have embraced Jesus Christ. For example, when it says in Revelation eleven two that the temple courtyard will be given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, it's likely talking about the second three and a half years of the tribulation period. And this time period when Israel is nourished in the wilderness for three and a half years is during this time of Satan's great wrath during the second half of the tribulation. And we will see this three and a half year period mentioned again in chapter 13 as it describes Satan's attack against believers in Christ. We'll begin that next week, Lord willing. So that perhaps fills in a little bit of the time frame as we're working in the book of Revelation. It's not the most important thing. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to turn this into a classroom, but it's helpful when we read these things to be able to put it together so we can understand better what God is trying to communicate to us. So during this three and a half years, the devil pursues God's chosen ones, the Jews, and they flee. And this attack driven by Satan, is real. It's very real. In fact, this is undoubtedly the terrible time that Jesus warned his disciples about in Matthew 24. Do you remember this? He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. 
Nobody's going to be left alive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short, which may have uh, get, which may gives us a clue as to why he says a time and times, more time, and then half a time. It's cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And we'll start seeing that as soon as we turn to chapter 13. And the dragon isn't done with the woman Israel. Just because she's escaped and is hiding in this place of nourishment that God has prepared, he's even more angry now that his, his prey has escaped him twice. First, the woman's child is caught up to the throne of God, and now the woman herself has disappeared into the wilderness. So if we keep reading down into verse 15, it says the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood but the earth came to the help of the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Now, what does this mean? Is, is Satan really going to send an actual flood after the woman, Israel? Is God going to somehow open the earth, maybe with an earthquake, and, and, and the water will go down into the earth and, and save the nation? Possibly. But I think it's just as likely, because again, we're, we're looking at this drama that John says as a sign. I think it's just as likely that Satan pursues the nation of Israel into the wilderness in some other way that's like a flood, uh, perhaps with persecution, perhaps with military might to try to drive them out. But what we see is that God is going to rescue them against impossible odds, just like he did again and again as we read the Old Testament rescuing them against impossible odds, calling them to faith and repentance. So again, we see that Satan here hates the Jews. He despises God's people. And throughout human history, he has continually sought to raise up people to destroy them. And we could chart that this morning. We could look historically at all the times. Some of you may have read a, a time period that I've studied quite a bit about 150 years before Jesus Christ even came onto the scene humanly. Uh, Satan raised up Antiochus IV, the king of Syria, about 150 years before Christ. And Antiochus gave the Jews an ultimatum. You accept Greek culture, which they could not do and follow the, follow the law. You accept Greek culture or you'll be executed. And thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews were torturously killed by Antiochus. He's mentioned in Daniel, actually. And that's when Judas Maccabeus and his brothers rose to the occasion and gathered an army and started to fight back. And the stories that survive from that time period speak of many times when the armies were surrounded and terribly outnumbered by Antiochus' forces, and yet God delivered them, just like we read about in the text of Scripture. We could trace today a long line of atrocities that have been committed against the Jewish people in the past 2,000 years. And the most recognizable to us, of course, would be the Jewish Holocaust, in which at least 6 million Jews were murdered. And those are only the ones for whom we have records. I've walked through the Holocaust Museum in Israel. It's heartrending. The program of anti-Semitism leading up to the concentration camps, depicting the Jews as if they were subhuman or animals, to turn public opinion against them, to get everybody thinking a certain way about them. 
and the terrible images of the Jews being herded into the gas chambers and the thousands of pairs of children's shoes that are discarded, that they have there just piled in the museum, this grim reminder of the thousands of Jewish people, including children who died in the death camps. Satan delights in that. And yet the people of Israel are still near to the heart of God. We already saw in Revelation 7 that God will be pleased to save thousands of Jews who turned to Christ during the tribulation. And we saw in Revelation 11, as I mentioned already this morning, that God sends his two witnesses to specifically preach to the Jews to call them to repentance before the kingdom comes. And now we see in Revelation 12 that God prepares a place of refuge for his people and he miraculously protects and delivers them just like he did in days of old because he loves his people. So we ought to love his people too and stand for them and pray for them. For to, do, to fail to do so plays directly into the hand of Satan, but to love and support and defend Israel engages us in an act of mercy that is dear to God's own heart. But there's one final theological reason that we should support and love and pray for the nation of Israel. Not only did Israel give us the Savior, not only is Israel hated by Satan and loved by God, but finally, the nation of Israel actually comprises our own spiritual heritage. Now, I want you to look carefully at verse 17. This is the bridge that leads us to chapter 13. And, and all of chapter 13 is about what's going on here in, chapter seven, in verse 17. After the devil failed to devour the Christ child and failed to conquer heaven and twice failed to overcome Israel... It says in verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So who is it that is the object of Satan's fury now? Well, they're described here as the rest of the woman's offspring. In Greek, that's the word sperma, her seed. They are connected as family to the nation of Israel. In what way are they connected? Well, notice how the seed is described. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, there's not a doubt in my mind that this includes the Jews who have come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period. In fact, this group at least, I think, includes those who are represented in the 144,000 Jewish believers that we met in chapter 7 and we'll see again in chapter 14. But their connection to the woman, now notice this, their connection to the woman, Israel, the reason they are her seed is not described by Jewish descent. It is described by spiritual descent. These are those who have embraced Israel's Messiah, whether they're Jew or Gentile. They hold the testimony of Jesus. They embrace the gospel. And they give their lives for the sake of the gospel. This is who Satan goes after next. And their heritage is in the woman Israel. Paul spells this out beautifully in Romans 9, 10, and 11. If we could just pause time, I would go through all three of those chapters right now and just walk through. They're fascinating chapters. But in Romans 9, the Apostle Paul explains 
our heritage in Israel, describing God's chosen people this way. He says, they're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, they had everything going for them. They owned salvation. But Paul continues to say in this chapter that even though the Israelites had everything going for them in terms of salvation, they were not Israelites in the ultimate spiritual sense if they did not embrace Jesus, their Messiah. Paul says in Romans 9, verses 6 through 7, which I still have here on the screen, but not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham simply because they are his sperma, his seed, his offspring. The same word we saw in Revelation 12. It means that those who are truly his offspring are those who have been obedient to God and have faithfully followed the testimony, the witness of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And by the way, I hope that all of you know, especially you young people, who have grown up in Christian homes, that Jesus is not your Savior just because He's your parents' Savior. Just because you have a heritage of Christianity in your family doesn't make you a Christian. You have to trust Him personally. Even the Jews had to trust their Messiah personally. There's no group salvation in Scripture. There's salvation in God's God's calling of people for his name, that's true, but that's what God is doing. We have to trust individually. You have to have a relationship with him yourself. Now, Israel is not the church, and the church is not Israel. If you didn't know my theology before now, uh, you do now, okay? When I, as I look at Scripture, they're, they're both the people of God. But God is doing something unique here that was called a mystery in the Scripture. We didn't know about this, so let happen. The church age. But our heritage as the church lies in the nation of Israel. This is the nation through whom we received salvation. We are not the root or the trunk or the original branches, but we're grafted into them. In fact, this is exactly what Paul goes on to say in the book of Romans if we come to chapter 11. He refers to Israel as the root of the tree and the trunk and the original branches and the Gentile believers as the branches that are grafted in, added later on. And he says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. And that includes the ones who are grafted in. We're holy too because we're grafted into somebody else, into Israel. And he says in verse 17, but if some of the original branches of the tree of Israel were broken off, and you Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, that's how he describes Gentiles, okay? So I, uh, you can be uh, impressed by that, offended by it, I don't know. This is what Paul describes us as, a wild olive shoot, a wild olive branch. If we were grafted in among the others and now share, share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, He says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are arrogant, if you're tempted to be that way, he says, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true, Paul says. 
They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. So what should be our attitude toward the nation of Israel? Love, support, humility, gratitude, intercession. How often do we pray that God will save his own people? I think we need to add that to our prayer list. And we need to appropriately define this word fear, the kind of biblical fear the Bible calls us to. That should be our response to Israel. We come to this conclusion when we see the way that Israel is spoken of in this text that we're working through in Revelation 12 that explains what is going to happen to Israel during the tribulation period. So it's not just American traditionalism that teaches us to stand with Israel. Our support and prayers for Israel are theologically motivated. By God's grace, Israel provided our Savior, and they are hated by our arch enemy who wants to destroy us too. But they are loved by God, whom we love, and they represent our spiritual heritage. As Jesus himself said to the woman at the well, salvation comes through the Jews. Without God's work through them, we would not be here. When God was showing kindness and mercy to them by rescuing them from impossible odds and calling them back from idolatry to repentance, he was showing mercy and kindness to us, his church as well. And I think we need to teach this to our children. We need to urge other believers when we have opportunity who are straying off this path that this is not the way to think biblically about Israel. That we need to love them and show support for them. And above all, we need to thank the Lord that he allowed us to join his chosen people. We, we weren't in the original plan. We were going to be brought in if we would come by repentance and faith. And by God's grace, we have. We're coming now as one who is chosen by God because we have placed our faith in the Jewish Messiah. So when we see what God is doing in Revelation in this chapter, Let's be thankful that he loves his people and he loves us and he has brought us together to worship him alongside our Jewish brothers and sisters who have put their faith in him. Father, thank you.